Today's episode of the Strength Talk podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, is brought to you by the Arc from Verve. If you want to improve your posture, the Arc has you covered. Developed by a physical therapist, designed by an engineer, made in the USA, the Arc is going to improve your posture and relieve that neck and back pain once and for all. What is up, guys? Welcome to brand new Strength Doc podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, with me, Dr. John Russell. I want to get one thing clear. This is not going to be your average fitness podcast. I'm sure as hell not your run of the most strength coach. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin back with a brand new episode of Strength Doc Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, we have the world's authority in spinal health and training with us, Dr. Stu McGill. Stu has spent his illustrious career up at the University of Waterloo, researching spine biomechanics and working with real live patients, something that's a little bit more novel in today's medical system. His clients include world-class powerlifters, gold medal Olympians, NFL players, and everyone in between. More than just a high-level athlete, Dr. McGill has seen some of the toughest spinal cases in the world, with patients flying in to see him on consult. This is some impressive stuff, and the podcast is just as impressive. Let's get right into the conversation with Dr. Stu McGill. Hey guys, Dr. John Russin back with a brand new episode of the Strength Doc Podcast hosted by UpDoc Media. Today we have world-renowned spinal specialist with us, Dr. Stu McGill. Hey Stu, thanks for being here. <laughs> Good morning, John. Now, I have been entrenched in some of your readings the last couple days, specifically your brand new book, Back Mechanic. So I'm so excited to get on this call because I have so many questions, just personal questions, after reading the first half of your book in the last day and a half or so. So I'm excited to get on this call. You must be a slow reader, John. Uh, <laughs> it only take you two or three hours. <laughs> and then between owning the office, uh, doing all our coaching, and then writing the articles, you know, I, I get 15 or 20 minutes here and there. But uh, once we put the kids to bed, that's my reading time. I'm just pulling your leg. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, the first, uh, the first chapter here, uh, it really resonated with me. We were just talking about this uh, off recording, but... It was something that was more of a myth busting, something that was more similar to things that I've seen in the fitness industry. But I think it was a chapter that needed to be written, especially for the spine and definitely for people reading from lay people coming out looking for this for an answer for their own back pain, but also from a medical perspective. Did, did you have fun writing that chapter? I Well, yes. I... I uh... Of course, there are so many institutional impediments for uh, getting people better who have back pain. And when when you look at the, 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 the typical practice where a physician is given 10 or 15 minutes with, with a person who comes in with back pain, um, it's not possible to do a examination that will reveal the person's specific pain triggers and uh, they have no chance to come up with an approach to eliminate the pain triggers and uh, then and only then uh, prescribe some sort of strategy to to get them better and what works for one person will will make the next person worse so there's all of these impediments and i don't it's very difficult to come up with one person and lay the blame at their feet so anyway that that's the first chapter to 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 say all right now um is it possible that a patient could become their best advocate uh, if they had a little bit of knowledge, what would that critical knowledge be? And uh, some of them will be savvy enough to guide themselves through the step-by-step -step, uh, process of, of dealing with their pain, and others will need some professional guidance. But uh, anyway, that that was really the, the, the purpose of the uh, introduction, and yeah, it was fun to write. Uh, I, I might also say, John, as you know, I've only ever written for a clinical audience or, or a professional audience before. It's very d difficult to, to uh, write for the lay public. So that was my challenge to, to make it prescriptive enough but not be general enough that uh, 
or find the balance between general and and specific specific to the individual uh, patient to 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 really help the individual anyway there there's a thought <laughs> <laughs> you know when it comes to knowledge uh, i was just having this conversation the other day with a coach uh, you know there's two ways to go after it it's almost like politics like do you have the trickle down effect you try to affect the most uh, influential people which are the practitioners the physicians or do you try to educate the general public to just bring them up a notch or two on their knowledge level so they can go in and challenge the status quo of the care that they're getting well that's hit the nail on the head my previous attempts have all been uh, targeting the 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 people like yourself who see patients and uh, give them the material they need to provide the most effective uh, treatments to the broadest number of people. So now I'm trying it the other way and, and writing for the lay public and see if I can hit more uh, uh, people who are not uh, getting to the clinicians who are effective and competent. Now, now with lower back pain specifically, uh, have you seen in your career, your 30-plus year career, that a lot of people are going undiagnosed and untreated and they're just trying to live with this kind of dysfunction and pain? Well, they certainly go undiagnosed. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of, uh, there are institutions, for example, that you can email your MRI scans to them and they will declare whether you're uh, a candidate for surgery or not. And uh, there's just an example where the only way you can determine whether you're a candidate for surgery or not is to have a physical exam where the clinician provokes your pain to make darn sure that the nasty looking thing on the picture is actually the thing causing pain because if the doctor goes in with a, a knife to try and cut the pain out and operates on the thing that looks nasty but the thing that looks good is the actual pain generator you've got an unsuccessful surgery so yes there are there are all kinds of uh, patients and and, and uh, people who who are undiagnosed um, now I forgot the second half of the question <laughs> you know undiagnosed but also uh, just go through and live with the pain and just act like it's just part of life Right. Yes. Well, you know, I have an opinion on that, John. And uh, as as you know, when you when you work with elite athletes, I really don't know of too many who aren't managing something. They are managing some injury history in some way. And the best athletes, at least the ones who are the most successful, are the ones who are best managers. So. Um, some people, yeah, you're not going to cure the, the, the thing that's causing the, the back pain, but you can certainly learn to manage it to subclinical levels and be highly functional as, as many great athletes have proven. Um, th does that help? Yeah, it does. And I think in our society, like uh, the Western society, everyone has like this like utopic view of what their body is capable of, whether it be training or whether it be getting out of pain. So even people that are highly successful in managing painful symptomology and like really having few and far between flare ups, things that, you know, they're 90 percent there. It's always that last 10 percent that's in the back of their mind. And I think that's where our society is really drawn towards the scalpel. They, they want to go for that last 10% and they want to be cut open. And we're led down to this idea that that's, that's okay and that's what's going to generate those results. Well, I, I see too many people who go that route and have the opposite outcome. They, they wish they hadn't done it. <laughs> you said something about 95% of the people that you're seeing, right? 95% are truly not good surgical candidates. Right. Well, there's a whole chapter in the book on the decision process a person needs to go through to uh, conclude whether they truly are a candidate for uh, surgery. Um, I don't know if you want to get into the specific uh, thoughts on that um, or not. Yeah, definitely a, a couple I think would be good for everyone to hear because um, it's definitely breaking a lot of those misconceptions. 
Yeah. Well, uh, folks have to realize that I don't see the average bad back. I only see the real difficult cases. In order to see me, the patient has already needed to have seen a dozen or so clinicians and they've failed. They've already been to the chiropractor, the physical therapist, the orthopedic surgeon, maybe a neurologist, and maybe in the end they've gone to the pain clinic to see a psychologist. Uh, but they failed. And uh, now they have been told their only option is surgery. Well, I get a lot of those people and only one in 20 truly is a, a, uh, a surgical candidate. Um, the, the things that make a person a good surgical candidate is the pain is coming from a single source. And that single source can be changed with a knife and the, and the pain uh, cut out. But there are many who will have multiple levels of disc pain or facet pain or, or, or nerve impingement or whatever it is. And the more the levels, the greater the chance of the surgery having a, uh, a poor uh, outcome, for example. Um, if a person has good days and bad days, they are not a surgical candidate. What needs to be done is document uh, and keep a log so that they're very clear in identifying what causes them to have a good day and then what causes them to have a bad day. Then you eliminate the things that uh, cause you to have a bad day and, and build from there. And we, we've had very disabled uh, regular people and, and high-performance athletes as well that if they can um, avoid those uh, triggers or events that cause them to have a bad day for a while, the neural sensitivity decreases. And that's what a lot of pain is as well. Um, people keep picking the scab unbeknownst to them uh, by the way that they move and, and load the uh, painful tissues and they sensitize their system. Um, they should play a game that we call virtual surgery. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware with, with your uh, patients and clients. Uh, I'll give you an example. Let's take a patient who comes in and says, I have to do the elliptical trainer every day for 20 minutes to get my aerobics in, otherwise I'll go mentally crazy. Well, great. That's why you don't heal. That's why you will always have back pain. Um, you know, say they had stiff hips, and we know that an elliptical for a person with stiff hips uh, will probably increase their back pain, and, and the risk is much less with someone who has uh, much uh, looser or greater range of motion in the hips. But in any case, we would say, if you had surgery, that is forced rest. So today, we're going to give you virtual surgery. Tomorrow, you will recover like you had surgery. Today, you will take a rest, and we will build you back very slowly. And you'll be amazed at how many people um, have a very successful outcome playing that virtual surgery game because it was the first time in their life that they were forced to rest, which is what surgery does. So that helps some people. Anyway, those are a few examples um, that are related to the question of uh, surgery and uh, what the risks are. Yeah, and I think those are the two most novel uh, factors that you brought up over in the book is the differentiation between, yes, I have good and bad days, and because of that factor, you are not a good surgical candidate. I see many people coming in, if they have one bad day in every three months, it's like, oh man, you know, what's my next option here? And that's quick to jump into the surgical realm. But the, the second thing is definitely that rest. Um, we see it all the time in high performance athletes, like they are forced to rest from what, an ACL injury, maybe a UCL tear for baseball pitchers. And all of a sudden they come back, you know, 18 months later, their velocities up for the pitchers. Um, you know, their speed might be better with the ACL that's prop properly uh, rehabilitated. And it's not because of the actual surgical intervention. It's what be comes after. It's strengthening the weakest links in the chain and really just trying to improve gross motor function. And I think that's what translates into better performances. And that's definitely a correlation that I see from what you were saying with uh, the virtual surgery with uh, your lower back patients. 
Well, we, we can document case after case of that, that the surgery was simply a trigger to get them into a proper uh, scientifically based rebuilding of their body. And, and you were right, it was the surgery that triggered that rebuilding of their body that uh, uh, unleashed uh, the, the, the physicality that was in their body, but it was never brought out before surgery because uh, uh, it was, it, there was no need to tune it, or at least their, their coaches and therapists uh, didn't recognize that. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, when you go back to just misdiagnosing, not diagnosing at all, from a systems problem, from our medical system, what do you think is the answer? Obviously, the easy answer is for everyone to get properly diagnosed and assessed. But realistically speaking, uh, in America, in Canada, uh, where can we go to make better numbers, more successful rates of rehabilitation on the lower back? Well, if the person goes and sees a clinician and they get 15 minutes, they're doomed to fail. <laughs> Need to find a clinician that will spend uh, a decent amount of time with them. Well, there are, when I, when I teach the, the clinical courses to clinicians, um, some of them will say, well, we can't afford to practice like you. Uh, we don't have three hours. We have to see a patient uh, because that's how we're judged. Uh, we have to see four and five an hour. And I say, well, you know, you can, you can continue with that model and continue to be a poor clinician. Or, uh, now I can prove this, um, I cannot keep up with the requests. Uh, and, and, you know, I charge a decent fee to see someone for three hours, which is that's how long it takes me to assess a back. To, go, to, to really hone it down and get a precise uh, read on the motions, postures, and loads, the forces, the positions, etc., that cause the pain. Um, you've got to spend that amount of time to, to, to do it. Um, I, I know there are many chiropractors who practice that way. There are some physical therapists, but it's certainly not the norm. So what's a person to do? Uh, I'm suggesting that some of them can become their best own advocate with a little bit of knowledge. And they can, uh, well, the, the idea of the book is to guide them through a self-assessment, identify their pain triggers, and then based on their pain triggers, they're given different algorithms to follow to eliminate them and then build their body back in a balanced way. Uh, so, as I said, it's a step-by-step self-help guide. Um, not everybody will be able to do it on their own, and, and they should take the book to their clinician and, and work through it together. Um, do, you think, do you think the future of improving physio, improving rehabilitation is the cash-based model where you can literally spend as much time as a clinician as possible with your client? or your patient to get the results that you know you're capable of getting if you're at the right knowledge level and expertise? I don't see any other way. I, I agree. I, uh, I've always been fortunate in my, my young career to have worked with enough time to hopefully make some big impacts on my clients. Uh, my first job I ever took, I was spending 30 minutes uh, spending manually with my patients. And that was, that was novel. Uh, out in Southern California when that was happening. And since I'm uh, relocating up here to Madison, Wisconsin, we spend an hour to an hour and a half with every single client every time that they walk in our door. And that's something that is super rare up here in the Midwest. And I want to say that I'm the only practitioner in the entire city doing so with cash rates. And um, it just goes to the three big medical systems here. They're pumping people in and out. And 83% of the people up here that are physical therapists seeing clients do not touch their patients and they have no one-on-one -on -one with them. So it's literally just an exercise program being prescribed. Uh, right. Uh, and, and I'll bet they're lining up at your door. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, it takes it takes a while for um, people to differentiate between good physio and bad physio because the lay person just thinks physical therapy is physical therapy. Everyone is the same. But a point that you made in the book is that you have to have the right practitioner. Just like there's a bad auto mechanic and a good auto mechanic, you want to find that right practitioner that has the skill set, the knowledge base, and also the passion to give you what you need. Right. I, I give a list of what you should look for in, uh, in that clinician. And uh, if I came over to uh, uh, Dr. Russin's clinic and got an hour and a half and I left with a very clear understanding of what my pain triggers were, that would be the best money I could ever spend. Yeah, yeah. When it comes down to it, um, you know, education on the side of the patient, I think as our job as practitioners is not only to treat passively and make people feel better, but to educate them so they can be their own best advocate when it comes to their maintenance. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you may have rubbed off on me on that on that statement. Well, you, you know, I mean, you could you could just change the topic and, and use a nutritional example. If a person isn't savvy enough to feed themselves well, uh, they will end up with what we call diseases of choice. Uh, they have eaten their way into sickness. Well, they will move their way into sickness, as you well know. Now, with movement, staying on that same topic, um, you think movement is key. I think movement is key. There's a lot of practitioners that really say that gross motor patterning and really just trying to stay within those pain-free motor patterns that you can really recruit the, the requisite musculature stabilization, that's the key to long-term success. But I mean, there's people out there that say movement patterns don't matter. We can isolate down. We can treat passively. We can get the same results. So I see the our industry divided on that point. Well, I would say show me the evidence because I'll hold up my evidence any day of the week. <laughs> 30, 30 plus years of evidence, right? Well, uh, I'm, again, mine isn't just clinical evidence. We run, as you know, two laboratories. We uh, are about the, well, it's certainly only one of a handful of universities in the world where we start by creating the uh, specific injuries, herniated discs, fractured end plates, torn ligaments, uh, etc., on actual spine tissues. Then we uh, have another lab equipped to measure uh, uh, intact real people, not, not dead cadavers. And uh, we have very sophisticated techniques to do stress analysis and figure out where the stresses lie within the tissues. We, we uh, consider their anatomical variation, the uh, individual neurology that they choose, which muscles they choose to activate and which sequences, and measure and evaluate what is optimal and what causes pain uh, and injury. And then we take all that to the clinic. And we try uh, to evaluate the new discoveries. Uh, a lot of them work out well and a lot of them don't. But that full circle of uh, investigating the mechanisms from the laboratory and then taking them to uh, efficacy analysis in the uh, clinic is, is really quite rare. Um, but I will, uh, as you know, we've had about 300 medical peer-reviewed um, uh, studies published on this. Uh, there's the evidence, and, and that's what I've tried to distill in my uh, textbooks. I, I will put that evidence up against anybody who thinks they're going to cure back pain by uh, simply prescribing an exercise or uh, a modality like, uh, well, you name it. Uh, Yoga, and, Pilates. Uh, well, there, you know, it breaks my heart when I go to a meeting and I'll be a speaker and, and they might have another speaker, it might be an orthopedic surgeon who stands there and says, um, you know, we, we don't know what causes back pain. And I feel like saying, sit down and go back to school because we know precisely what causes back pain. And then they'll say, well, you know, exercise is important. Let's recommend Pilates or yoga to our patients. And again, I say, hold on. 
a certain Pilates move might be very appropriate for one patient, but it might be the next person's pain trigger. How can you say that? Anyone who would say that doesn't have an understanding of of what exercise uh, is all about and, and what the goals of it is. It's about balancing a body. You know, I often use the analogy of building a race car. There are very few car mechanics who could tune a race car to win at Indy. But there are there are a few. And if, if, if they add a little horsepower, they have to stiffen the suspension. They have to change the tire pressure and the tire compound. They have to change the gearing and the transmission. So we do exactly the same thing in bodies. Um, if you add a little stability in one region to engineer out the micro movements of a painful joint, then you probably need to create some mobility elsewhere in the body uh, to, to allow the linkage to perform. Um, anyway, <laughs> to, to, to tune a body, is, it isn't just about going to Pilates. It's about very uh, selectively um, using exercise to tune the, the, the person's body to be pain-free and resilient uh, from, from future stress. It's a basic thought, but everything needs to be unique to your presentation as a person. And no matter if we are, I mean, we beat to the, this uh, concept like a dead horse here on Strength Doc Podcast, whether it be with Brett Contreras talking about specificity of glute training for his figure athletes, or it's Kelly Sturette talking about the specificity of how he's building uh, aerobic systems for his elite-level CrossFitters. It needs to be specific to the client and specific to the athlete and specific to the patient. And there's no other way to put it. You know, well said. Let's use an example of sit-ups, for example. Um, here's here's let's take an analogy with uh, we're going to bend a thin branch which will be analogous to a spine if we bend a thin branch back and forth it won't break because there's no stress developing but if we took a thicker branch and bent it to the same number of degrees it would break and shatter because it's bigger and it creates bigger stress so you know we've we've published papers over the years well what is what are the different exercises that we might use to get a person out of disc back pain and uh, okay, well, uh, we obviously need to produce, to create some guy wires in the front of the torso, and, and we need some some abdominal muscles. And uh, I'll say, but it, sit-ups is not the way to do it. And then uh, people will say, oh, McGill, you're an idiot. We can go on YouTube, and there's a fellow in Brazil who does several thousand uh, sit-ups every day and he, 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 he's quite fine and I say well you know if you knew the science uh, <laughs> you, you'd back off a little bit I don't need to even look at the video although I have but I can tell you all about the fellow in Brazil who can do thousands of sit-ups he will be a very slender man only a very slender spine could withstand uh, those numbers of bends. Now, if you took a uh, offensive tackle from the NFL and gave them uh, a reasonable number of sit-ups, they would probably herniate their disc because that that very thick spine that survives in the NFL mutually excludes the ability to do sit-ups and not develop disc stress. Versus the fellow in Brazil, he's got a slender spine, no problem, he can bend it, but you can't put much load down his spine. He would never survive in the NFL. So there's just an example of two different people uh, having two very different athletic capabilities and totally different injury mechanisms. I, I touched on this uh, last year on T Nation. It was an article called The Core Training Reality Check, something along those lines. And it just looked and kind of debunked the myth of uh, how dynamically strong the rectus abdominis really needs to be. And uh, as you know, like the MME, MMT testing, uh, you know, you can grade it out by, with a numerical scale, and that's fine. That's all we need. We don't need to say, hey, Herschel Walker can do 5,000 sit ups in a night. You know, does that mean anything for his overall transferability from strength and 
functional capabilities to bringing it to the field, like it doesn't really mean much. There's no correlation there. But a lot of people think, you know, the more sit-ups I can do, the stronger my core is going to be, the more hypertrophy, the deeper cuts. And it's one of these myths that just sits around for hundreds of years, I see. And nobody will listen to the experts when it comes to that. Well, I, uh, then uh, where I would head with, with that sort of argument would be uh, for these people who want to criticize, uh, well, we'll stay on the sit-up topic, and I'll say, well, fine, how many uh, careers have you restored in the UFC? And if the answer is zero, then I'm not probably going to listen to that person. But uh, for someone who, who, who has had to do this several times, um, here's what happens. Uh, you take a fighter, and it's the tradition in some forms of martial arts to do a lot of uh, sit-ups. And um, when you really examine it, it is to create armor in in the in the torso, so you can receive leg strikes, uh, arm strikes, and blows that won't damage the uh, visceral contents. Um, but in terms of uh, performance. Uh, here are these fellas, they come in, they're 22 or th 23 years of age, they've traumatized and sensitized their spinal discs because of the numbers of sit-ups that they've done to create the armor. Um, now, I have their career is over. They, they can't train anymore because of back pain. Well, then I'll say, instead of a laying over a gym ball and doing curl-ups and sit-ups over the gym ball, let's turn over. Let's do a stir, stir the pot exercise. So the elbows are on the uh, gym ball or the, the stability ball, and the toes are on the ground, and the person locks their core and stirs around in circles and back and forth on the ball. So now the spine is locked in a neutral position. The discs are protected and they're not bent and all of a sudden the pain associated with bending is now gone and they can train um, to a very, very high level and they're back in the UFC fighting again. So what was missing in all of that was the um, uh, who, who, their trainers and coaches believed that sit-ups was the only way to create the athleticism needed. But the reality of it is, and if you measure what a UFC fighter uses the rectus and the obliques for, it's to create a stiff core that unleashes velocity distal to the ball and socket joints. So it's no coincidence that the core has a ball and socket joint on either end of it. It gets stiff and the velocity is created uh, on the distal side of the shoulder and the distal side of the hip. The stiffer the core, the harder the leg strike. The, and I'm, I think I'm the only guy in the world who's measured that. So th there you go. Um, let's train the rectus and the obliques in a way that matches how they will be used. Um, and it isn't to create hundreds of flexion cycles. Now, obviously, you do need some flexion ability to lock in a submission if you're in guard laying on your back and that kind of thing. But that is uh, once or twice, uh, perhaps, in, in, in a round. And the rest of the time, the core is used as a short-range stiffness spring. Anyway, I, I, I hope that's not getting too uh, in-depth, but it certainly addresses this uh, issue on um, matching uh, a specific exercise for a specific goal and, and the broad mythology that's out there that, that causes a lot of um, uh, substandard athletic performance and unnecessary injury. Yeah, I, I had a question, uh, you know, about that uh, specific to core training, the musculature, uh, also the segmental spinal stabilizers too. Uh, you use the word a lot endurance when it comes to training those muscles, those structures. Uh, are you truly talking about muscular endurance of a prolonged hold, an isometric hold, or are you more speaking of the reactability for a longer period of time that they can really turn up uh, their tension, turn down the tension, and just be reactive to what the hips, what the shoulder girdles are doing? Uh, both, both. Well, let, let's address training. Well, let, let me go back and, and 
I'm trying to figure out the order I should do this. Let's talk about endurance as a principle. Um, when we measure groups of workers uh, all doing the same job, we measured a group of guys who chromed uh, car wheel rims for a Chrysler. And there were 76 of them. 26 of those had recurrent episodic back pain every year sufficient that they would lose time from work. The rest of the workers, the 40 some odd, never had any back pain. So we measured uh, their fitness, their range of motion, uh, core stability. We spent half a day measuring each one of those workers. Um, now, it will surprise a lot of the listeners to hear what was the difference between the ones who had recurrent back injury and the ones who never had a back injury. The ones who had recurrent back injury were stronger in their, in their back muscles, <coughs> excuse me, but they had less endurance. When you analyze when people get hurt, it's when they're under load and they break form. What happens is if strength runs ahead of the ability to control proper form under load, uh, then they increase their risk of injury. So there has to be a base foundation of endurance to allow an individual to keep repeating perfect form as long as they're using that high strength under load. Do you follow? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. So that is, uh, we've, we've measured this time and time again, back endurance, particularly men, get into trouble when they get strong. So there has to be that ability to maintain good form. So now the question becomes, well, how do you build that when someone has a back pain? And the way that we have measured, once again, I'm not talking through my hat and hand waving here. This is all well founded. Um, we use what we call a Russian descending pyramid. And what that means is um, we use very short exposures. So this is un-American. In American training, endurance is created through longer duration holds, but that causes the risk of back pain and muscle cramping and that kind of thing. So this was a technique that I learned in Russia. So say uh, a person was doing the big three exercises, which would be a bird dog, a side plank, and a modified curl up or a, a front plank for, for the front. All they do is hold each um, uh, hold for, t for about 10 seconds and then they relax and then they hold again for 10 seconds and then they relax and they do a set and then they, they might rest, a, oh, I don't know, 20 seconds or so. And then they do a second set of repeated 10 second holds that are fewer in number in reps. And so it becomes this descending pyramid. It's a very tolerable way for a person who has fairly sensitive pain triggers to start building endurance. So uh, again, people who aren't familiar with our work say, well, McGill just recommends 10 second holds for endurance. Yes, I do. That's how you get um, an endurance foundation built in a person uh, who, who has uh, a lot of pain sensitivity. But after a while, then we will morph into longer duration holds. So if you're building someone to swim the Olympics, uh, for example, obviously you're going to have to create that long-term endurance. But again, it, it's a progression. So that's why endurance is important and a few uh, thoughts on how to build it back again. What's going on, guys? I want you to head over to drjohnrussin.com forward slash get coached. We are taking coaching programs to the next level up here in Madison, but also remotely on an online training platform. DrJohnRussin.com and our staff are truly bringing you innovative e-coaching programs built to fit any goal in any individual. Whether years in the iron game have left you a little bit banged up and looking for new solutions to keep on moving forward, or you're a high-level athlete, figure competitor, or bodybuilder, our programming over at DrJohnRussin.com has you covered. For the fraction of the cost of a random personal trainer at your local gym, you can become an online coaching client and take your workouts, nutrition, and lifestyle to the next level. This is no cookie-cutter online program or the programs that you're used to seeing in this month's fitness magazine. This is intelligently designed 
custom-built programming using cutting-edge methodology and having daily interactions with me, Dr. John Russell. The only question remains is, are you ready to take that next step to train pain-free, to achieve the fitness and health goals that you've always dreamed of, and do it all for less the cost of an average personal training session? Head over to drjohnrussin.com forward slash get coached. Yeah, the, the RKC variation of the front plank is something that I use uh, pretty exclusively with, I'd say, 80% of my clients. And they come from an old school thought of, no, I need to hold this plank for 10 minutes right off the bat, even if I'm a dysfunctional mover. And it's something that they almost look down upon as like, oh, only 10 seconds. You know, what can I get out of 10 seconds? Well, you can get a very good activation. You can be uh, muscularly linking different segments. You can also learn how to build tension. And uh, it's something that it's really a buy-in factor, but we've had a lot of success with it based off of your work. Well, absolutely. It's it's a mindful training. And uh, Pavel, who uh, is a friend of us both, uh, and... Uh, uh, he, he's very much into creating mindful uh, strength and, and mindful training. Skill, uh, strength is a skill. And uh, that 10 second mental focus is uh, uh, a fantastic uh, creator of, uh, of athleticism. And you can only keep that mental focus for uh, 10 seconds. But if you repeat the 10 second holds, you'll build um, uh, very quickly. A, uh, a good athletic base. Yeah, absolutely. Now, switching gears a little bit here, I wanted to ask you just a little bit more about movement and more specifically dysfunctional movement and really the one pattern that you see a majority of people just coming in with where they cannot perform it correctly and that's really the biggest predisposing factor either to dysfunction, uh, performance reduction, or even local pain in the lower back. Okay, well, uh, the biggest, uh, most common reason for back pain in the people I see is disc bulges, posterior disc bulges, uh, caused by uh, flexion. Now, uh, there's a lot that goes on in, in, in what I've just said. Um, how shall we start this? It's very common for... Uh, the, the modern lifestyle to sit at a computer for eight hours a day and then go to the gym for one hour. What that does is they go to the gym and, uh, you know, I read an article the other day about uh, you're not a real woman until you can deadlift twice your body weight. <laughs> well, if you're going to put that much load on your back, uh, you need... Uh, a few years of adapting the bone in the vertebra of your spine to back up the end plate so you don't get microfracturing of the trabeculae just underneath the, the, the growth plate. And that, that takes a lot of training to achieve that and a lot of progressive training. So if you were to take a stay-at-home mom uh, and then start her deadlifting and again I, some of your, this will insult some of your, your readers, but when I watch them coach a deadlift and they think it is keeping a neutral spine and pulling a bar off the ground, uh, I'm so saddened. They don't <laughs> understand how to stiffen the core, how, where the breath should be, how to set up the, the foot width to fit the anatomy of their hips. Um, how to get a good grip and a twist into the bar to activate the latissimus and, and stiffen the back all the way down to the bottom of the sacrum, etc., etc., etc. And uh, uh, so now they create a tiny bit of micro damage, but then the person sits at work for eight hours. So it becomes so unfair. We all know the couch potatoes who sit at work all day long and then sit on their couch at night and they never have a scrap of back pain. And then we have the person who's a little more health conscious. They go to the gym for an hour every day after sitting. They, they, they aren't disciplined enough or the volume isn't correct. And uh, they're creating these, these very, very small uh, micro fractures in the trabeculae. And then this sets up 
um, uh, a disc bulge and pain while they're sitting at work. If they didn't work out at night, they, they, the chances are they might have more tolerance to sitting during the day, but it's almost a perfect storm. So in any case, there is a uh, probably the most common dysfunction that I see. Um, yesterday, I had a, a power lifter who uh, uh, flew up, and uh, they were the polar opposite. They were extension driven. In other words, every time uh, they got strong or where they were about to take load, they over elevated the chest. They were far too much chest proud. So even as they were getting into the lifter's wedge, as we call it, to, to start a lift from the ground, they drove their spine right before they took load into even more extension. And uh, then we had to go through a routine of what we call Okinawan strength, which is uh, pulling the rib cage down a little bit when you get strong rather than lifting the uh, rib cage. Uh, so it, it, again, you know, when, when, you, when you see these dysfunctions and what triggers their pain, uh, you realize that people have pain for a reason. The, you know, the flexion intolerant back uh, when you watch them sit in the waiting room, they sit in flexion. <laughs> the extension intolerant back in the waiting room sits in extension. Uh, it's, it's very curious. But uh, anyway, um, that would be the answer to your question in terms of what I see as the most common. But having said that, uh, there's just a wide variety of uh, dysfunctions that end up causing pain. And, and some of them are a little tricky to... Uh, to figure out but uh with that three-hour assessment hopefully we'll get <laughs> yeah hopefully <laughs> now with a majority of people coming in with a flexion base intolerances is it their inability to effectively hip hinge uh in activities whether it be in the gym or in their daily lives yes and yep. along I, those yep. lines i mean i see a lot of clients that come in that really love to lift weights they love to be active and they're trying to really like really improve on their deadlift form and if you want to improve deadlift form who are you going to look to the strongest people in the world right so competitive power lifters i think have a little bit different of an idea of proper spinal bracing spinal positioning and actual technique pulling off the mat uh, than you and i would think with our backgrounds in physical therapy well, absolutely. I mean, be careful what you're asking for now. Um, it, it, people don't realize that fitness is one great big game of trade-offs. Um, for example, uh, you, you, you can't have a high VO2 max and be explosive. So if you're a hockey player, the best, you know, years ago, they used to test NHL hockey players with the 10-minute run. How far can you run in 10 minutes? And then I started to ask a few, few of the coaches, well, what's the correlation between running for 10 minutes and putting pucks in the net? And it turned out to be anti correlation negative um, because you just identified the slow twitch and durable player so um, now I can get back to power lifters you training is 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 quite specific I do not know of a great power lifter who can throw a football they don't exist the stiffness that is required to be developed in the core to become a really competent deadlifter will exclude you in throwing a football and running and cutting and all of these kinds of things. So again, you got to be careful what you what you're looking for here. So um, uh, you might choose some of the powerlifting exercises, but you need to morph those to fit your body and the ultimate um, objective of whether it's pain control or whether it's developing a certain athleticism. But uh, every person who does a deadlift must start by having a hip exam. Where is the shape of the femur uh, around into the, 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 the whole anterior margin of the acetabulum? Um, are they even qualified to, to get the depth and pull a bar from the ground, or should they be pulling off blocks how high should the blocks be what should their hip opening angle be uh, and all these kinds of things um, and then okay why are you doing deadlifts because and we've done this experiment as well take the average volleyball team and you've been tasked 
as a trainer now to increase the vertical jump of the volleyball team. Well, if you use uh, deadlifts and squats, you will find that uh, a few of them will quite increase their vertical jump. Another uh, group will lose height from their vertical jump. And if you asked two questions before you started, you would have had a much better training protocol. If you said to the team, um, all of those who are naturally strong, you go stand on the left side of the room. All of those who are naturally quick, you go stand on the right side of the room. And what you'll find is the ones who are naturally strong and you added more deadlift and more squat, you ruined their vertical jump. More strength on strength will slow them down. But if you had the neurologically quick players and then you added that base strength, chances are they're going to be a lot um, better off in, in the vertical jump. So that was the first question. And then the second question is an architectural question. If you take a, uh, um, let's say someone like an MBA center who's seven foot tall. Well, when you look at the uh, leverage ratio, when they sit down, they're quite short. In other words, the legs are much longer and the body is much shorter. And when you analyze their vertical jump, you'll find they jump with a hip dominant strategy versus a much more typical volleyball type body with a longer body and shorter legs. You will find they have more of a knee dominant uh, uh, jumping strategy. Once again, the deadlifts and the squats, you have to vary them and play with them to get the best kind of deadlift and squat matched to that dominance of either the hip or the knee. So it's a long answer, but it's very complicated. And uh, you, you have just as much chance, if you don't know this material, of ruining the athleticism and increasing the risk of injury as you would of decreasing the risk of injury and enhancing athleticism. Anyway, it was a long story, John, but there's a little bit on powerlifting. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I know we just went over a little bit on the deadlift there, but some of the things that you were saying, uh, you know, necessary to actually get performance enhancement results reminded me of the age-old question of squat depth too. Um, you know, how deep should we be squatting to one, stay safe, two, make notable gains, and three, do it for the long run. So, um, you know, when it comes to uh, strength coaches getting their athletes in and trying to prescribe a variation of the squat that is going to work for their anthropometrics, but also uh, a technique and a way to execute it perfectly that they're going to be able to really just build a foundation off of this movement. What are your go-to strategies to assess uh, the, the hips, the squat, the mechanics of the spine and everything to make sure that we're instilling the right kind of movement patterns? Fantastic question. It's, it's an algorithm. The first thing I do is I take a clipboard with a pencil and a paper and I write down what are the requirements to perform in this sport? Simple as that. Um, so if it's a hockey player, uh, we know uh, basically what we need there. If it's, a, if it's a martial arts fighter, we know what we need there. Uh, by the way, when I first started doing that and I said, what are the requirements to some of the coaches? They said, well, we've never documented it before. And I said, you got <laughs> kidding me. So, you know, I would watch the rounds of the fighters and I'd say, okay, well, they spent three minutes in isometric control. So they need heavy isometric endurance uh, to control uh, an opponent. Uh, they might be on their back. And then they did two explosive movements gaining their feet. Anyway, you see what I mean. So I write down what are the physical requirements. And then on the next page, we do an assessment and we assess the individual for those requirements. We train the difference. So what the person doesn't have, what they need, that becomes very directive in their training. So let's take a hockey player and now we, we can answer the squat question. How many times have you seen a player in the NHL do a deep squat? Uh, maybe in fights getting off the ice. Okay. <laughs> well, the, the, the answer is it's zero. Uh, what, what creates incredible acceleration on the ice, the ability to change direction and put pucks in the net is hip external rotation. It isn't deep squats. The number of pro hockey players I've had who in the last few years now have gone into this idea, you have to do deep squats. 
um, to, to play in the NHL, they've ruined their backs. They never needed it in the first place. And hockey players, as you know, have, have stiff hips to begin with. So there's an example. You don't deep squat a hockey player. Now, should you deep squat an NFL football player? Again, I, I can't remember seeing one uh, do it on, on the field. Um, but uh, for a lineman coming out of a stance, certainly uh, a 90-degree hip and, and knee squat would uh, uh, probably be, be very uh, uh, functional. Um, but once again, uh, I've had plenty who uh, never pull a bar from the floor. They always pull a bar off blocks, and they're all pro in the, uh, in the pro league. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah, it does. And I guess my follow-up question would be, uh, you know, say you have one of those NFL players or the NHL guys in, uh, they have amazing hip range of motion. They have the ability to have requisite spinal stability throughout a range of motion. Is there any advantage whatsoever to having them squat to their maximal depth over just sticking where they need to be within uh, sport-specific parameters? Well, I would uh, answer the question by saying I need to know their full program. Are they pushing cars? Are they dragging sleds? Are they farmer's walks, suitcase walks? I need to see the full uh program and then i know i only have so much tolerable volume a deep squat will use up a lot of that volume is that the best use of the volume i think i want more uh sled dragging to be uh, honest with it with a football player yeah that, that makes sense and then you know last thing on this subject is you know the 99 percenters out there not the guys playing on sundays but everyone else just looking to be a little bit more fit obviously bulletproof their bodies for the long term. Uh, When it comes to to squatting, uh, I really don't see a huge advantage unless you're uh, a sports-specific athlete that uses those range of motions, like you've said, to going any deeper than maybe five degrees below parallel. Well, I I can't even use five degrees until I've done my assessment because there are are many who, who shouldn't even be there. Um, I happen to be one of them, but you know, here, look at me, I'm a hip replacement and, uh, I've been there. With, I didn't know that. And, and, and training. And, uh, uh, so, you know, you'll, you'll shorten your athletic career. Um, th- there aren't too many, uh, of the older athletes now who, who spent, uh, time, uh, in the rack who still own both of their knees and their hips at 60 years of age. <laughs> But that's the kind of guidance I think uh, our industry needs is the people that, you know, they have the expertise, not over a 10 year period, but over multiple decades. And, you know, they're sitting in the seat that you're sitting in and they can look from one, a research standpoint, but also a practicality standpoint that, yeah, you know, you've trained this way. You've seen the repercussions, maybe, maybe not. And you've seen the successes of other training methods and really what's going to really spare the youth athlete, the professional athlete, somebody that just wants to be a little bit more fit until they're 70, like you're saying. Uh, Where can we guide the general public to make them a smoother transition into just uh, being active for the long run? Avoid extremes. Be moderate. Avoid joint injury. Oh, man. That's a good one. Avoid extremes. You know, stay in the middle. Do what you can pain-free. I think that's the key to longevity. Yeah. I uh it's in the book actually it's it's a little wisdom from uh a couple of very uh successful senior people that I know uh a retired fire chief would be one um a grandmother is another but they 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 were uncanny in in what they uh said Uh, Out of the seven days a week, I get up every day early and I do a little bit of work, physical work. Then I have a good breakfast. Two days a week, I strength train. Two days a week, I work on joints that need a little bit more mobility. Two days a week, I do things completely different, like ride a bike or swim or, or whatever. I walk twice a day. 
Am I am I am I tickling your fancy a little bit on that? <laughs> you know, walking. You know, you you struck me with uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was. I know you walk to work every day. I know you're a big proponent of walking, not only to really just feel out the diagnoses, but also just for uh, general maintenance on the body. Um, when did when did you start uh, really just seeing? the great results you've got from maybe the simplest movement in the human capacity? Well, when I measured it, um, we, <laughs> we were the first to implant intramuscular electrodes into the deep muscles of the spine. Um, it's interesting that when, uh, a, a, uh, and then, you know, we've been through these eras that are so much fun. Um, a few years ago, physical therapy was enamored with the transverse abdominus muscle and its role in <laughs> spine stability, which all turned out to be, you know, fluff. Um, we measured, uh, say you stand nice and tall and I put 50 pounds in each one of your hands. What muscle is your motor control system going to recruit to allow your spine to be stacked and stiffened and not buckle under that cumulative 100 pounds in your hands now? The answer is quadratus lumborum. It doesn't matter whether you're doing a sit-up or an extension or a twist or throwing a ball, quadratus lumborum is always active. And, and you and your clinical work know that it is a bit of a stuck muscle in, in some back pained people. Mm -hmm. Now, the first time I had electrodes in my own spine because we had to do this on our on our own bodies before we were allowed to do it on, on others, uh, it, we discovered how walking is about the best thing you can do to get quadratus lumborum going. Uh, when I measured uh, World Strongmen competitors, uh, they, 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 uh, well, I can think of one who was very successful. We measured his hip adductor strength, uh, sorry, abductor strength to be about 500 Newton meters. And yet when he carried a super yoke, competitive super yoke of several hundred pounds, he needed 750 pounds, uh, 750 Newton meters of strength to do it. In other words, he didn't have the strength to carry that heavy a load. And then when we analyzed it, we figured out, well, it's not the hips that are carrying the load, it's quadratus lumborum and the obliques on the other side. So the glutes on one side are buttressed and supported by holding the pelvic plat flat platform uh, level so it can carry a stacked spine. It's all quadratus and uh, the oblique. So we were starting to see how much quadratus um, uh, radiates strength from the core out more distally uh, in the linkage. And uh, that takes us right back to walking. So with a back pained patient, walking is non-negotiable. We just chunk it up into small, tolerable walks. If a person can just walk down their driveway and, and uh, back again once an hour, that would be how we would start that in a very tolerable way. And then slowly build that up to say 20 minutes, three times a day and uh, go from there. But it's that whole core uh, training from walking that sets up this whole mechanism. Now, even for the non-dysfunctional client out there, patient person, uh, is there advantages to walking to be a protective mechanism? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just describing uh, how walking really starts off the whole progression for, for quadratus uh, and the obliques. It's so simple, and people I don't think will ever buy into it because of its simplicity. But you know, I've had good success uh, personally with walking programs, not only from just maintaining orthopedic health, but also uh, performance enhancement, composition enhancement. And uh, people are quick to dismiss it, and uh, always think more is better, more intensity is always better. But sometimes simplicity uh, is the best thing. Yeah, um, you'll notice in that uh, chapter on walking, I think we call it nature's back balm in the uh, book. Uh, I give some variations which are very interesting, and I used it again yesterday in that extension-driven uh, uh, pain in the power lifter I was I was I mentioned earlier. 
Um, if, if you have knee pain when you're squatting, uh, sometimes that's due to insufficient gluteals and hip extension. Sometimes it's due to imbalances uh, between uh, vasti medialis and lateralis and, and the, the patellar uh, tendon becomes untracked a little bit. Well, if you walk backwards, pushing through the knees up a hill, you will find that that is about the best natural balancer of the knee that there is. For, for the uh, family of quadriceps and, and patellar tracking. So with patients, um, start them on the interval walking and then walk backwards up a hill. Now you can get some of these extreme strength athletes who are powerlifting and they are absolutely gassed walking up a little hill backwards. So if, if, if you want to prove your point and, and they want to go to the extreme, I'll say, oh, really? Come on over and try this and we'll see how tough you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, Stu, this is, this is great stuff. And I know I'm taking up a lot of your time here. So I just want to make sure everyone uh, gets the links that they can find you, your information, your research, uh, obviously your books at. So what's your central hub that everyone can get, get the information that they need? backfitpro.com it's just as it sounds backfitpro b-a-c-k-f-i-t-p-r-o.com you can see uh, my full uh, if you search around there's links for uh, uh, there's some uh, uh, podcast downloads uh, there's a few little YouTube clips uh, there's my books and DVDs on there the clinical courses that I teach um uh, and and links to uh, my university website with my full uh, CV and all the medical papers. It's all linked through there. Perfect. And uh, after talking about back mechanic a bunch on the podcast here, they can pick the back up back mechanic up on the on the website as well. On backfitpro.com, absolutely. All right, perfect. Um, I appreciate you coming on and definitely dropping some knowledge on everybody here. It's not many times that you can have the world-renowned expert in any subject matter on. So I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, and I appreciate you, John. Um, I, I haven't known you all that long, but uh, I, I must tell you that uh, you're an outstanding uh, interview interviewer. Your, your, your questions are just right on target and so well posed. So thank you, sir. <laughs> Thanks. I've been at it, you know, a couple months now uh, with the spoken word. You know, we've done a lot on the writing side of things, but. Uh, Hopefully, uh, we keep on getting better and better over here. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you've got a wonderful start. Good for you. Appreciate it. Wow, guys, what an episode with Dr. Stu McGill. It's not every day that you get to hear from an expert who is literally at the top of the industry. And that's exactly what we had with Stu today. If you loved listening to this podcast as much as I loved recording it, head over to iTunes, hit us up with a five-star review, and keep on moving this podcast forward. I know these reviews seem simple, but it's something that really helps us out and brings in the top experts throughout the fitness and wellness industries. Until next time, guys, I am Dr. John Russin with the brand new Strength Doc Podcast hosted by UpDoc Media.